Hello and welcome to Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Liu Shishin's The Dark Forest, Book 2 of the Remembrance of Earth Past series. This is Season 3, Episode 1, The Wall Facers, where we'll be discussing the prologue and the first half of Part 1. Season 1, we talked about the three-body problem, and the hosts have varying levels of knowledge on this book and the rest of the series. My name's Dan. I've read the series a bunch of times now. This is Tim. I've uh, only read up to the uh, current chapter. This is Amin. I've only read up to the current chapter. This is Jim. I haven't read it, but I have read the Wikipedia article. Uh, Some quick follow-up before we get into it. So I have posted a new episode of the interview series. It's on our website at rehydrate.space or in the normal feeds. Uh, Please contact us via any of the mechanisms that you can contact with us uh, to if you would like to participate in future series. I also want to mention that, like I said, this is uh, season three of The Dark Forest, and the reading list is at rehydrate.space. The episodes for this book are a little tricky to break up since parts one and three of the book are so big. I have to delimit the chapters with the ending lines, and the ending lines are kind of spoilers, especially for the, this just chapter. Uh, so just check the reading list to if you want to follow along with us. Another problem is that the page... Pages for ebooks and the paperback versions are different because ebooks can have, you know, relative page sizes or page numbers based off of the font size and all that stuff. So the page numbers are based off of the U.S. paperback version on the website. And finally, uh, simultaneously, like we mentioned before, we're running season four, which is the Unfathomable Music Project. Uh, episode one by Tim talking about the band Tennis is coming soon and will be in the same beat. So let's jump into the summary for. Part one, sometime close to the end of the three-body problem at the grave of her daughter, Ye Wenjie meets up with an astronomy-turned-sociality professor named Luo Ji. She suggests that he takes up the study of cosmic sociology, the study of the super-society made up of all civilizations in the universe. Meanwhile, the Trisolarians speak to Mike Evans of the ETO about the nature of humanity to deceive, a concept that they do not comprehend since they communicate with their thoughts directly. They become afraid of humanity and abandon them, leading Evans to his doom aboard Judgment Day. Next, we enter Crisis Era, Year 3, and we're introduced to someone's named the Second Wallbreaker and the ETO. The Sophons reappear to the Second Wallbreaker and let them know that they have a mission. Afterwards, the Wallbreaker meets up with the remnants of the ETO in the virtual world of Three Body. We're also introduced to three old men adjusting to the world both of retirement and of the new Crisis Era. Afraid for the continuation of the family line, Zhang Yuancho is tricked by Dasher's son Xiaoming out of $65,000 when he promises to guarantee that his family has secured a spot on the ship that will leave Earth in about 120 years. Zhang realizes that he's been scammed after the UN passes a resolution declaring escapism a crime against humanity. We're also introduced to Zhang Beihai, a naval political commissar who ultimately joins the newly formed Chinese Space Force. He warns the organization about the dangers of defeatism within the ranks. He worries that the current military is too reliant on technology, and because of the Sofan lock leading to humanity's inability to progress scientifically, the soldiers in the upcoming Doomsday Battle in 400 years versus the Trisolarians will feel that the war is unwinnable. Finally, Luoji ultimately does take on the study of cosmic sociology, where he tells the woman he's been sleeping with that he could have been famous for. Despite not remembering her name, their relationship comes to an abrupt end when she is hit and killed by a car in an accident right in front of him. He's taken to a room far underground where he believes he's under arrest and being questioned by our old friend, Da Shi. It becomes clear that Loa isn't under arrest, but rather under protection and is being transported under heavy guard on the way to the airport where he boards a long-distance charter flight. During the flight, he recollects a time where his previous girlfriend asked him to write her a novel, Luo works on this novel and in the process ultimately fantasizes about the character he has created and falls in love with her, bringing the relationship with his real-world girlfriend, who also had an imaginary lover, to an end. Luo and Shi land in New York and go to the UN headquarters, where the Wallfacer Project is announced at the General Assembly. This is a program that's designed to combat the Trisolarians by exploiting the fact they are unable to understand or practice deception and cannot read human thoughts. The project charges four people with developing plans entirely in the confines of their mind. The Wallfacers are given virtually unlimited resources and power as part of the project, and Luo Ji is named as the fourth Wallfacer. So before we get started, I do 
understand that there are a lot of new characters introduced in this chapter and it can be confusing uh, and they're all kind of thrown in you at once. Like there's a couple of characters thrown in from the previous book, like Yeo and Jie and Mike Evans and Da Shur, but we are new to a whole bunch of characters. So I'm going to kind of level set. Um, same way we kind of did with The Long Way to a Small and Great Planet, uh, kind of run down the list of the characters. Um, there's a couple more characters introduced later in the book, but by and large, most of the characters who we're going to be following through the book are introduced here. So first of all, we have Luo Ji, uh, an astronomer and sociologist. We have Wu Yue, who is a captain in the PLA Navy. We have Zhang Beihai, who is a political commissar in the PLA Navy and eventually a Space Force officer. We have Chang Wei Si, a general in the PLA and also a Space Force commander. We have George Fitzroy, a U.S. general and coordinator of the Planetary Defense Council. We are also introduced to three old men, uh, Zhang Yuan Chao, a recently retired chemical plant worker in Beijing, Yang Jinwen, who is also named uh, Lao Yang, a retired middle school teacher in Beijing, Miao Fu Chuan, a Shanxi Kolbas neighbor to Zhang and Yang. We are introduced to, quote-unquote, the second wall breaker, a book, and the book says we'll never know their name. Um, we're also introduced to Xiao Xiaoming, who is uh, Dasher's son, Bai Rong, who is Luo Ji's previous girlfriend, real-world previous girlfriend, and finally, uh, Secretary Sei, the Secretary General of the UN. Like all the names, uh, if you go to rehydrate.space uh, slash pronunciations, we have person who is better than me is <laughs> pronouncing all the names so you can understand and uh, know how to pronounce, pronounce all the names. So finally getting to the discussion points, uh, the first thing I wanted to bring up was the axioms of cosmic sociology. So the axioms that Ye Wenjie proposes to uh, Luo Ji is that first, survival is the primary need of civilization. And second, civilization continuously grows and expands, but the total matter in the universe remains constant. So, uh, Amin and Tim, I finally get a chance to talk. <laughs> I mean, like, do you have any thoughts on, on the field of cosmic sociology in general? I mean, it really just seems like I'm trying to create the broadest axioms you, know, you could probably come up with. Survival is the primary need of civilization. Well, you know, sure, that's uh, that's something I think you can reasonably infer about any organism or any living organism, not necessarily a civilized one, or however you define civilization. I suppose ants have a civilization of a sort, and civilization continuously grows and expands, but the total matter of the universe remains constant. So not exactly like what the point of the total matter of the universe remains constant like part of that is, other than to like infer that civilization Basically, there's not an ever-expanding pie. I mean, as big as the universe is, it's still a limited pie of resources at some point, and that civilizations would eventually come into conflict with each other at some point. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I'm just kind of mapping these axioms. Like, these are kind of the axioms that games like Civilization uh, work off of. You know, they're called 4X games because you know, I'm forgetting exactly what the 4X game stands for expand exploit exterminate or something like that there, uh, there's explore also or maybe yeah yeah explore uh, but i mean i don't think there's I, I, all all i think this is trying to say is that civilizations or at least you know will come into con like are inevitably going to come into conflict with each other that's obviously discounting the uh enormous size of the universe and that the likelihood that civilizations will ever come into contact with each other now obviously that has been that's assumed in this series that uh we already have another civilization in the nearest star system yeah i i didn't understand the second part of the second axiom either around the total matter of the universe remains constant i don't know i, I guess i didn't put as much weight on this as maybe Dan wants us to. Uh, so it's maybe this is something that we covered in the spoiler cast about why this matters. But right now it just seemed, it seemed obvious and basically inconsequential other than to set up that there is this thing called cosmic sociology, which will propel the plot forward at some point. The weight I think you should put behind it is that it's basically, yeah, when she has last words, right? Like that's how she she had at the end of the chapter, she said, we're not going to have a chance to talk again. You know, she's old and frail. I, I think like that even lends him more weight. And then on top of that, yeah, Loji later on says that he could have been famous for these axioms, right? He kind of, you know, three years later, he took on the profession of cosmic sociology and said, yeah, like 
because of the crisis that happens, you know, and, and now it's like, now it's more of like a popularized thing, but like he had come up with that before he had taken credit for that uh, before the, the world went to into crisis mode. So uh, that, I think that's why there's more, a little more weight behind it. Man on the street question. Is huh? it all matter? Is, the amount of matter is constant or is it matter and energy is constant? The axioms say that it it's just total matter in the universe. I think, uh, that's, I don't know. I'm not. I'm not a physicist, but I mean, well, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, the law of conservation is the, the the amount of matter and energy is constant, right? Matter changes the energy. Energy changes the matter. Is are you sure that's what it said, or is this like a new finding or something? No, I mean, I copy and pasted it from the book. Oh, so that's okay. that's what the book All says. Right. I'm All not. Right. Yeah, I'm not going to debate Luoji or uh, Yoji about their their understanding. But well, yeah, I mean, dead. yeah. <laughs> Well, I don't know if it's because so, she's dead. So but did, they, she's, did they ever yeah. explain what the deal is with like what happens in the middle of stars? Then you know you have matter, right, and it's constantly being changed to energy. Uh, I don't think they specifically get into that. Okay. Well, maybe, maybe that's a thing. I'm, I'm sure that Liu Shishin knows about that law, that the matter and energy thing. So, hmm. so maybe that's that's a thing you guys should look out for. Yeah. Uh, next, I'm going to talk about the crisis era in general. So I thought the way that this book opens uh, in kind of having humanity's reaction to the crisis era was was really interesting. And, you know, the book kind of um, morphs into, in, at least in the beginning of it, a little bit of like a sociology book, you know, and like the you know, how people are like afraid of the Sofan strikes and people get scammed out of you know, out of money when they um, when they want to continue their family line. Um, what, did, what did you guys think of that? Do we know, is this exactly like, like, what, did, did it ever uh, explain when the crisis era began? Or are we just assuming that that is like, that started at the end of book one and that we are like essentially three years beyond that? That That's how I took it. Basically, like, as soon as like the world kind of knows, because at the end of the last book, they talked about like, oh, well, now we understand that there's Sofans and the Sofans are always watching us and we know the Trisolarians are coming. Uh, and so that, that kind of got out and just started the crisis era. So, I always took it as like the prologue kind of happens contemporaneously with the, you know, with the end of the three body problem. And then part one skips three years after that. So th that's how I always took it is like, yeah, basically three years after the end of the three body problem. Uh, anyway, so how did you guys think of like the kind of the world's reaction and like, it, there's a lot of like talk about like defeatism and triumphalism and all this, all these different terms that, that happen and become, become out of the, um, the fact that they know that the Trislerians are coming in about 400 years, but not a lot of people think that there's a lot that they can do to defeat it. I guess they had never really touched on like, are there like factions that simply don't like believe that it's happening? Like they never really addressed that because like, I guess it begs to begs to inquire as to by what channels did the populace get the you know I got I suppose from their governments like why you know like and I guess that begs the questions like why would their governments necessarily like release this information right away if you learned supposedly learned that in 400 years humanity is coming to an end or humanity is going to be invaded and all that I mean that is interesting to think about like how would people like react to that like is that is that too far away? Like, is that too far away in the future that people would necessarily like actually have kind of revert to a panic state? Yeah, I wonder like early on in the crisis era if it like was, you know, like in year one or year in the very beginning when like it was announced. However, they 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 never talk about how it's like it officially announced or anything. Um, yeah. I, I would assume like, yeah, maybe the government has tried to keep it under under wraps, but then they couldn't because it's too big, right? And then eventually just spiraled out of control, and everyone just kind of knew about it. So I, I wonder if there was like mass panic in the beginning. Depending on how it actually reaches the general populace, if it's like covered up or kept secret by the government or, you know, just not released to the government and then was released through unofficial channels or something like that. I, w I would imagine like 95% of humanity would just assume that this is some sort of goofy conspiracy theory or something like that. And it really wouldn't immediately change things. It would wreck the kind of, you know, havoc on the level of, uh, I don't know, the Pizzagate people, the, you know, <laughs> which isn't insignificant, but it doesn't. I mean, it seems like the, the scientific community, though, is talking out about, about the crisis, you know, because like they, they have like that yeah. news report of Dingy on the on the news talking about like the how the Sofan strikes actually can't uh, actually cause leukemia or any of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, maybe in the beginning, like enough of like um, important scientific people came out and said like, yeah, this is a thing, but it's, it's going to be 400 years away. And maybe the governments are trying to say like, all right, we're going to create a space force. We're going to create like all these 
these plans to try to combat the Trisolarians and we have enough time possibly to to defeat them. And then Zhang Beihai is trying to like say like, hey, people are going to have this defeatist attitude, attitude and we really need to combat you know, early on. Yeah, it's just hard to believe that. It seems like we almost like skipped over a set or like there's no like recollection of like what year one or like the first month of this information being released to the public. If, if it were, it became known in a way that would be like through official channels or government channels or, you know, had the backing of the scientific community in a way that like, okay, this isn't some crazy conspiracy theory that, that, you know, that would be paradigm shifting in some way for humanity. And that like the fallout of that would be maybe a bit more like immediate and extreme. Maybe, maybe that happened. And now we were like moved past that, but it, it's kind of curious to me that there's no discussion of like what was humanity's immediate reaction to this here? That's never addressed. Like, they never get back to it. I mean, they just kind of plow on from here. Maybe, like, Lucia Shim is just more interested in, like, given the fact that now everyone more or less accepts that this is a thing, that the Trisolanders are coming, what the actual reaction to that is going to be, and not have to worry about, like, yeah, conspiracy theories or that kind of thing. Right. And people generally being kind of short-term in their general self-interest that maybe the idea that it's 400 years from now smooths over people's like immediate emotional reactions to this that's like well i'm not gonna you know it's the same way with climate change now it's just like oh i'm not gonna see it i'm not gonna see the worst of it so you know yeah that's true this yeah. is usual for me i think climate change is a it's a that's a good analogy to yeah, to this to the crisis. Sort of, I mean, yeah, I mean, sort of. Be, I mean, in that climate change is still more of a part of the problem of accepting climate is that it is, you know, gradual and like, whereas this is like, obviously, like a singular event that we know or assume is coming. Yeah, I think that that's a good point. So, I mean, did you have anything to you wanted to add to it? Or? Did you have any thoughts around the crisis era? Or like the general shift in, in tone uh, of the, the beginning of this book anyway? Uh, no, I, I think Tim... I think Tim said it all. I, I guess I was surprised there wasn't even more discussion of conspiracy theories and scammers and stuff like that, because clearly that's what would really happen in if this was the the case. But um, I like that they had they included part of that in this with, with the guy losing sixty five thousand dollars. Right. <laughs> I, yeah. I think one thing that, that that kind of threw me when I first read this book is like the number of new characters that have been introduced, and so maybe like that was maybe the reason they didn't expand it even more because like you know how many people getting introduced and like how many people can you show getting scammed or yeah um, deceived you know and there's already you can tell there's a lot of stuff being set up you know it's only like the first six of the book right so there's yeah. a lot of stuff that's going to happen and so like that's not like the primary focus of the book isn't isn't that but i think that because he spends so much time on it because he introduced like three whole new characters that talk about like like the general populist reaction to the crisis era. Like he wants to show this important, but not spin up 30 new characters. We had to remember all their names and like what the general the sense of it is. I, I was a little worried when I just saw the dramatist person a thing at the beginning of it, um, you know, because um, yeah. like I, I'm having a hard time. You know, it wasn't until like the middle of this reading where, you know, with um, Lo G and then Dashi coming back that like, characters started to sort of like crystallize for me in this because it was just a bunch of names at the beginning it's just like i couldn't keep track of them like you know at first um so it's a it's a lot i mean especially in this not being one giant chapter um it's right. a little hard to take in at the moment and you know but um and, and you know when I, I did the when i did the summary i also kind of broke it up by character but you're not reading the book like like these chapters are all kind of intermixed with each other so like you're cutting back and forth between john Beihai and law g and the and the three old guys like and so like there's just like a lot of stuff coming at you at once and it's kind of hard to like track it sometimes i think especially as american readers where we have, like they're all like chinese names right. <laughs> and like hard to remember yeah i do kind of hope he kind of continues to go into you know or at least seed some details about like just like sort of society you know on a on a sort of like ground level societal reaction to this because that's kind of stuff is always like interesting to me like how like society might change or react or cope with some like world shattering event, you know. I don't know if you've ever seen the uh, HBO series The Leftovers. Like it's, it's a series about two um, percent of the population just up and disappearing, and what happens to society after that. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite shows. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I agree that like that that's the most interesting part. Is like they don't really explain the mystery, and like that's not important, right? The important thing is like the reaction to why that happened and that that's i think that's maybe the same kind of mo here right like where 
Yeah. Yeah. Like we didn't know they're coming. We don't have to worry about that they accept it or not, but like this is how people are reacting to it. I mean, I'm going to assume, you know, because I think, you know, that show is much more concerned with like on like a humanistic level of example, human beings and the reactions is where I'm going to assume the author here is ultimately going to be more interested in the kind of bigger, the scientific stuff. But I mean, there is a lot, the details that we get here are interesting, especially like the tri, you know, uh, the triumphalism versus defeatism thing. Like that seems like a uh, realistic uh, duopoly of like ideologies that might spin out of this. Yeah. And I liked how they, they talked about escapism and then they eventually like understood that like, yeah, based off of the inequality of wealth of nations and the this difference in like scientific ability of different nations that they made it a, a crime against humanity for, for escapism because of the the problem of determining who actually gets to escape, right? Yeah. But well, yeah, but that... did, did you guys think that that would actually stop the people who wanted to escape from escaping? I don't think that people, but like the nations, right? I think like, I mean, maybe not, maybe, um, there's probably like rogue nations that would continue with it anyway. Like, you know, you have the North Koreas of the world who are just going to continue building their, their escape ship, right? I see it not not necessarily like rogue nations, but like kind of how we see not because I mean we we see like the U.S. like not agreeing to technology sharing you know thing and that like this is all I'm curious to see where this goes whether this sort of maps onto the real world where this is like a United Nations thing but we all know in the in the real world the United Nations isn't particularly powerful or important and that like escapism might continue to carried out by the Jeff Bezoses and Elon Musks of the world. Um, yeah, that was my thought too. It wasn't necessarily yeah. about nation states adhering to this. It's about individuals who who have the means to do this for their for their yeah. future and, generation. And it's like because the US, you know, like in this, you know, we, we see the US not agreeing to the sort of open source technology initiative here. And is the consequence of that is that the billionaires, just especially in the U.S., continue to find their own escape hatches from all of this. And also, I'm, I'm sure if there's some enterprising entrepreneur, there is a chance that in the next 450 years that this rule is revoked or revised or something else. It's, it's definitely malleable, I would say. I think they do try to make a point that like that the U.N., you know, right now, like the U.N. is not. Not every country, you know, depending on the leadership, the, sees the UN as like the primary authority, you know, and as like the kind of central authority. But it seems like the world is kind of coming together around the UN. Like they talk about the missile defense shield and like, um, and like that's how more it's more of like a worldwide effort now. Um, and they have that the Planetary Defense Council, and like it seems like the world is based off of this looming threat that the world is starting to come together around the the kind of a central authority. Yeah, I mean, well, that's, you know, that, that would be one of my big questions about something, you know, that continues to explore if something like this happened, because obviously, you know, again, the analogy to climate change or whatever, and again, climate change isn't a perfect analogy for this, but is our world capable of, maybe it would, maybe it would have to be something like uh, something that the the U.S. could understand like a foreign enemy or something, but as so, you know, like a, a foreign enemy that is extraterrestrial would be like the one thing that could like get the US or you know other developed nations to sort of agree and actually come together in some sense for a common goal cuz it's 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 hard for me to imagine you know they would take something on that level and also to have this sort well again the 400 years thing is another big question to me cuz it's like that's so far out it's sort of hard for me to imagine that people actually taking it seriously right out of the gate like that like it would i feel like it would have to be more impending like your you know your your children or grandchildren are going to see the you know alien vaders um to like get people to actually or get governments and to uh actually take it seriously and come to you know start to form like a central authority yeah, that, that makes sense. Uh, I mean, I, th- I think they do mention um, it a couple times, you know, where, especially as they're talking about the new Space Force, where the, the people who work on it are going to, because they also talk about the hibernation technology, where people could just, they, they want to just jump directly to the to the 400 years and just you know, wait you know, and, and jump into the battle on the front lines so they don't have to, like, do the setup work. But I think that's going to be a, a common problem, right, where, like, go, all right. I'm curious about the hibernation technology because they intimate that it's like, like we have it at this stage or something like that, but like we, yeah. we certainly do not, at least as far as Maya. Yeah, I, I think like that's one of the, the leaps in technology that we had to, to kind of assume, you know, sort of like the, the nanomaterial and like the, the crazy VR world and stuff. I think we had to, as a, I think we're just supposed to take that as an assumption that like in this 
parallel world, they do have hibernation, hibernation technology because they don't even really address it. They just kind of mention it offhand, like, oh, we have hibernation technology already uh, and people want to jump, right? So I think that, that's how I read it. Yeah, I think it's kind of a, he kind of had to invent that or assume that in order to make these like faction, you know, like sort of ideological factions kind of make more sense, especially even with the, uh, like, you know, he talks about the escapists and like that there's even like three, you know, schools of thought within the escapists, which... I do like, like, I like that, like, he doesn't make these factions like monoliths, you know, like, he sort of did the same thing with, you know, um, the ETO in the first book that, you know, there's the Adventists, and I'm forgetting the name of the, the Redemption. The Redemptionists and the Survivalists. You know, that, you know yeah, the, uh, you know, shows nuance there. But, uh, yeah, I think that kind of, yeah, to, you know, assume that we have hibernation technology to make those factions make sense. Yeah, uh, Lucian likes his factions. <laughs> every 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 group that he comes up with like ours has like you know three different branches or more um so talking about the un uh and kind of their their more central authority and like their kind of recognized authority i think that's maybe similar to how people how you're supposed to just take hibernation technology as kind of red and i think like you're supposed to also take that the un has more more authority now in year three of the crisis era and more like recognized authority across the world so i want to get into probably the biggest thing of this, these chapters is the Wallfacer project um, and the fact that they come up with like this weird plan after a bunch of drafts, uh, apparently, and there's the only one that really worked, where a Wallfacer would be given broad authority to do whatever they wanted, but do it in secret, So, but only in their mind, uh, and yeah. then not tell anybody until it's at the most advantageous time. Um, so what did you guys think of, of that even even minus the fact that it's weird that Luaji was named one of the Wallfacers, even without his knowledge. Um, but I guess, like, just in general, like, what are your thoughts around the, the Wallfacer project? And do you understand it? Do you have any questions or thoughts or anything? The only question I had was whether or not the Wallfacers are allowed to talk to each other, or is it going to be completely isolated the whole time? That part was slightly unclear to me. They can do whatever they want. They can... The only thing they can't do is tell people their plan, yeah, and how, that and then includes other wall facers. And how did well? How are they going to pass? Yeah, how are they going to like pass these on? Like, how are they? You know, that's that's my big question: is how did these plans get put set into motion? Then you know, it's like they have to figure out a way to like enact their plan. You know, with without uh, and, and I would assume that involves the creation of organizations and. Manned by people and without like any understanding of why or what they're doing. Yep. <laughs> so I'll, I'll say that it's like it's a huge point of the book, right? Yeah. Like they're they're not he's not going to shy away from details on that. And yeah, it's it's a really it's not it's not an easy problem, right? And I think they make that. And I hope there's not a spoiler, but I, I think they do mention that like the wall features can hibernate and to see their plans into. Um, into the, like if they develop technology that's not available right now, they can hibernate into the future and 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 then enact our plans. Right. I'm pretty okay. sure they mentioned that. Hopefully, it's not a spoiler. Yeah, yeah. No, no. I think that I I do remember that. I mean, I think the central like the reason why like the wall faces get like I think the um you know is interesting. Basically, the, I mean the fact that like the the weakness or essentially you know of the Trisolarans is that. They just, you know, like this is the, you know, probably the most interesting part of this, right? You know, is learning about how the Trisolarans communicate and that they have no, it's just like their thoughts are broadcast. There's just like antennas talking to each other. So they have no concept, no conception of deceit or secrets or private thoughts. Right. And they're, they're afraid human, of them. Humans can do, <laughs> yeah. And the fact that humans could do it, like that is actually a quite an interesting like uh, difference between, you know, between them and, you know, like the fact that that is how like humans are going to attempting to, you know, be their like ace in the hole against them is uh, is an interesting setup and an interesting concept to me. Yeah, the Trisolarans even consider it pretty primitive. Like we have to use our mouth organs to communicate. Like what are you doing? And it's like, you know, it's like kind of analogous to like the bug thing where they think they, they consider us bugs, right? Yeah. But the bugs I, are able to survive. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think like there, there was no hints of this. Like we we knew nothing, almost nothing about the Trisolans from the first book, right? Because I I think you know like this is this is something that was like revealed in this book, right? Because I'm forgetting. They, I think they did mention that they communicate with uh in, in a faster way, especially when they because um, if you remember about the computer thing in the in the first book, and then eventually when they find out from the Trisolans, like well everything was kind of you know everything in the world of three body was kind of made up. Except for the computer thing, they really did that, but it was faster because they communicate with light. <laughs> and so I think that's that's basically it's like their brains are 
the way I envision it is like their their skull, like their their head is like transparent, and their brains are just like transmitting like light and waves, and people and yeah. and the other translators just pick up on that. So I think that's only mentioned that they they make specifically in the in the previous book where that kind of builds on that. Right. And I think this also closes kind of a plot hole in the first one of like how the Judgment Day was able to be taken out and not, you know, like if the Sophons are around finding out all the information, like why couldn't they find out the project of uh, Operation Good Jung, right? Like they, they could have found it out and told them, but like because Mike Evans like starts telling about how humans can lie, then the Trisolarians get afraid and then and leave. And not afraid, but I think they said they are afraid. But anyway, they leave yeah. and they kind of abandon the yeah, you say afraid, yeah. So. Yeah. So, because it's such a, yeah, I guess it's just such a weird concept to them. I mean, I like this as this is kind of like the first real, like this is more, this is, this is a more interesting alien characteristic to me than the super technology of being able to unfold sofans or something, you know, like unfold atoms. I mean, like, as like neat as that seems and all that, that's just space magic, you know, in written terms of like this book, but um, in the series, but, uh, but the actual like fact that they can't, you know, deceive is, uh, cool and i'm assuming um you know i'm also though it leads me to wonder why they even announced who the wall facers are in this sort of kind of pub well not public way but if they wanted like it seems like they would you know it'd be almost as secret as the un could possibly make it as far as revealing who the I mean, and to me, like, there's no secrets. Like, even if they, like, only, like, told specific people, because it seems like the Sofans can read documents or do anything. So, like, yeah. if anyone knew any time, uh, they would know. And so it's not worth it. And it, I always was under the assumption that they, that this uh, General Assembly is on TV, because they had other uh, things on TV, right? And so that, that, that was my assumption. Well, yeah, because, I mean, now these, I mean, and I'm going to make a prediction, assume that this, at least of this book or the next, you know, that the wall facers now are target number one for the ETO, how they protect themselves or how they, uh, like, I, I imagine that's going to be a source of conflict is like they're going to, assassins being sent to kill the wall facers now. Um, mm. And, or like how, uh, well, yeah, I mean, if they know that though, like how, yeah, it's like, how does, you know, the Trisolarians, like they're going to know who these people are at some point, like they might not understand because how they're going to do what they're going to do because they don't understand this deceit, but they know that like, they're going to know that these people are important and they are like humanity's, you know, prime generals or prime weapon against opposing them. The UN is definitely like pulling out all the stops and like had like what 16 planes like fighter jets like uh yeah, escorting Lo Chi to uh the from China to the US. So right. I mean I would guess that like they're really under like really heavy military protection. And you know Dasher is part of that uh, security and like he's already kind of proved that I think that they mentioned in one of the chapters like the other ones are a little bit more complicated. The, the other three wall facer or the other three wall facers are a little more complicated. Um, and there was complications getting them to the to New York, but it was the you know Dasher had the best way by me- keeping it simple and you know protecting uh, Loaji. Yeah, and it's all, now it's been established that the Sofans like the only thing that they can do is like gather information, right? They can't interact with anything like on Earth. They can't. Right. Not not they, not like they can't not, like sabotage a machine or anything like that or the the only thing they can really do is do stuff at like a quantum level, you know, where they can like disrupt particle accelerators and that and like that that's how that's why they have the Sofon lock where it kind right. of blocks like large scale technology changes based off of like fundamental understanding of how physics works. But they can't like yeah, destroy airplanes or that kind of thing. And like right. I think that's maybe why he put the thing of like the Sofon strike and like not being real and not causing like Leukemia, because like there's not enough matter right. uh, in that in the sofans to actually that like, cause any kind of problem like that. Right. Yeah. Because I mean, yeah, that would be a you know that's an interesting question about you know the societal reaction to this. If you, I mean, if you un- the average person try to tell them what a sofan is, uh, you know, I imagine in this context, like, oh, it's going to be like there are nano machines everywhere and they're in my body and they're in this. Yeah. And all that. This is one of the things where it feels like he's almost downplaying, minimizing like the more realistic social you know social reaction to that would be absolute paranoia on a global scale. That's true. I mean, I think like that does exist, but like, yeah, it's definitely not the amount that it actually would be, you know, people like freaking out about, I mean, yeah, yeah definitely people freaked out. Like I got leukemia from the sofans, but like you didn't, maybe he's putting more stock in that. Like people would understand and accept what the scientists are saying and saying, no, it's not a thing. Like people would I just guess. be like, I, mean, I don't know. There's, I'm people, a- there's people who think the COVID vaccine is, you know, 
right giving you nan you know you know implanting nano machines in you so right the covid vaccine causes 5g right so <laughs> um so why do you think they chose uh Loa g as the as the fourth wall facer like obviously like the other three had like backgrounds where like the you know Loa g was like saying like oh i can understand like why they chose you know ray diaz or bill hines or frederick taylor i can understand like you know they have their backgrounds and like they, they make sense right but then like he's totally surprised and i think you know we as the reader are supposed to be totally surprised that Loa G was actually the, the fourth wall facer when he had no discernible skill <laughs> for you know coming up with these plans the axioms of cosmic so- sociology doesn't seem like such a intellectual uh, breakthrough to me and, and he's not really well recognized either for it right because you know he said he could have been famous but he's not and like there's like tons of people who do the same thing now so as we're talking about Loa G, I have to talk about one of my least favorite parts of this book and the series, which is Loa G's imaginary girlfriend. Unfortunately, I would say this is maybe worse than the whole Jinx and Love You thing, although there are worse parts later on um, that make it. Uh... Anyway, this is, I think, as I've talked to people who, you know, as part of the interview series, like this always comes up as like, you know, like, oh, the series is great, but. <sighs> you know, like to talk about the oh, so the, like the imaginary girlfriend yeah. part. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna yeah, I uh, I recognized a few paragraphs in that this was gonna be like a long like flashback type thing to this, and I wasn't really interested. So I'm gonna admit that like I really kind of skipped over this part. In that <laughs> you know that this was okay. Well, this is trying to you know establish you know a different a softer side or something to this character, kind of a ham fist of you know because he's kind of shown to just be kind of a, a dickhead till now. I wouldn't say that I wouldn't say that it's a softer side to him, but it is a I mean, it's really just a misogynist side to him, right? Like and I think they tried to balance it out by saying his girlfriend also had an imaginary lover at the same time. But like, you know, he falls in love with only the idealized version of a woman in his mind. And that woman is kind of not I mean, submissive kind of, but like not really doesn't have a lot of agency and it really i mean this part and then like a part we'll get to later also really bothers me um and it it bothers a lot of people so So, i I don't maybe this is why he's in a weird way so i mean like i mean is he is like lucia shin here kind of like trucking in the kind of uh psycho you know like the character trope or the psychographic psychographic of like the autistic genius type guy who is like just doesn't like the only way he can relate to someone is to yeah like craft an idealized version of them i'm like thinking of like ex machina or that movie you know of like Hmm. like the character in there or but yeah i mean i've seen like types like you know another like science fiction where it's like maybe he's partially because he's chosen because like he's not good at forming social connections or is not you know like that won't be like a problem for him but uh, or at least like that's what people assume of him. But maybe he has this sort of inner life that's going to torture him as he's you know isolated away as a wall facer. Just from a writing perspective, it, it was I don't know what the word is. It, it was bothersome to me that that he had that the girl that he slept with, and then they're going outside, and then she gets killed, which I understood was kind of established a little bit of character and help help move the plot forward. But the fact that they never revealed that woman's name, you know, it, it was it was interesting that he couldn't remember her name, but then when he did remember it, he didn't even bother saying what her name was. I thought that was kind of you see this trope in movies a lot where there's just some objectified woman to show how virile the man is and I thought that was uh yeah, I don't like it when, when books do that. So I, I took it I took it to be that and I also took this whole section to be kind of I understand that it may turn into something else in the future, but right now it just feels like writer's fantasies or writer's whims more than more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what it reminded me of the, the Jenks Levy thing, right? It's like, it's just kind of creepy. You know, it kind of feeds into the stereotype and of female with no agency where just being something for the man to fantasize about or, you know, kind of shove his his thoughts and like his his idealized version of what what a woman is onto onto the page in this case but in this case it's entirely imaginary rather than even just an ai i don't know which which one is worse i mean maybe i i guess no real women were hurt by it in this case yet i did not like this the first time i read it and i've i've continued to not like it and like i said like it is not uncommon for people who have read the entire series to consider the this part and this part to be like uh, among their least favorites part, parts of the book 
Wait, so is this generally taken as like this is a reflection on the author, Lu Shishin? Like, like he kind of thinks it like this is like author insert thing, or like he's deliberately writing kind of a a person with like a character. Whether you like this section or not, like it, are, are people saying this is like an indictment of Lu Shishin and his attitudes about women, or this is like he's deliberately writing kind of a damaged character here? I think both. It's not intended to be a good character trait of the Luoji, right? It's like he's it's not intended to like be like, oh, look how romantic he is, you know, and like he's like coming up with an idea. Like I don't think it's meant to be that. Right. Um, I think it's meant to be like Luoji is in his own head, but it it does you know lead to kind of this this overall thought around um, uh, Liu Shishin being kind of uh, being a misogynist in some ways, uh, you know, and we saw that in the other book with um, with Wang Miao kind of idealizing Yang Dong and taking secret pictures of her and like fantasizing about her. And now we have Lo Ji making up like fake women in his head and falling in love with them and like breaking up with his real girlfriend because of it. And there's some other things later on in the series that also kind of lend credence to kind of like a general sense of misogyny. I will definitely say that like that's one of the more negative aspects. I don't think it overshadows the entirety of like how much I, I love this series, um, but it's a thing, you know? You know, as I was breaking this podcast down and, and coming up with, with this, like, this is in my mind, like, all right, I have to get to this part. <laughs> like, I know it's a thing and I know it's not great, but like, let's power through it. And like, there's lots of cool stuff happening, but I, you know, I don't want to not address it either and just kind of paper over it because it is like, I don't want to say controversial, but you know, it's, it's as controversial as, you know, things get in like a, a Reddit sub forum, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't doubt that like Leo himself think that he's a flawed character for, for doing this and, and wrote it that way specifically. But as a reader, it, it is, it is hard to read. I mean, as far as what I've read so far, you know, of, you know, of it, like to me, it's like a jury's still out as to whether Lu Shishin is like, cause like depiction, it doesn't equal endorsement or is not, you know, as far as authors are concerned, deliberately write character, not all the time. I, I do think it's very interesting that it's, it's inescapable. So let's say you knew that the author uh, did not empathize with this character or the other way around, there's some statement that said, yeah, this is, this is how things should be. You know, you, you can't exactly do the thing they say to do about Woody Allen, where it's like, you know, just ignore his pedophilia, (laughs) just enjoy his movies where people are whining about stuff, not to offend uh, Woody Allen folks, but yeah, there's an interesting I thought you said not to offend pedophiles, but. Who well, can offend I mean, them? No problem. <laughs> that's not. I mean, that's not necessarily. What I mean, in this case, it's just that, like, whether, like, like whether this just is a reflection of the author's own attitudes, or he's writing these characters to be this way. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, what I'm, I'm guessing is, if, if, if this is me reading this, I would be affected by that, no matter how much I tried. If, if I knew one way or the other, you, you know how I'm just trying to say that it's, it's not a simple thing to divorce the actual life of the creator of something from from the thing they make. Yeah, that's fair. I had something that, yeah, as I was reading through this book a couple, like this is, I don't know, my fourth or fifth time or something, uh, you know, I pick up more things. And so I have what's called the, what I dubbed the cryptic foreshadowing corner, which I, it's going to make sense to you guys, but hopefully it will make sense to readers who have uh, read this series. Um, so there's lots of mention of goldfish, which has interesting uh, implication, implications throughout the entire show. And then the cosmic axiom that mentions that the total matter in the universe remains constant also becomes important later on. So I don't expect you guys to know, and you shouldn't know uh, what that means, but for readers of the series, the, those are sort of interesting. So just finally, overall, just the thoughts from, from you guys. Um, so how did you feel about like the pacing, the, the style and pacing of this book versus the three-body problem? Because they are very different books. And I don't know if that's meant, I don't know if that's, down to that they are translated by different uh, English authors. So the first, uh, the first and third books are translated by Ken Leo, and this book is translated by Joel Martinson. It, me personally, I think this book, like the way this book is written, is a little more dry, not maybe not as expressive. But I don't know if that's down to how the edition wrote them or if it's a translation thing. But how, how did you guys feel about just like the difference in style between the books, if there is any? So I thought the way that the Luoji parts were written were much better than anything from the last book but then i thought the rest of these first sections that we read were just the same so i guess 
I guess I did notice a difference, but to, to me it was it was a it was an improvement over the last ones. And again, I don't know if it's up to the translator or the style of the this book in general. But I thought I I, I felt a difference in in reading those sections as I was reading them. Um, I, I thought he did a better job of building tension, even the whole weird thing about his his imaginary partner. Um, I thought, and, and like Tim, I, I tended to skim over most of that, but even that I thought was better communicated than, than the other parts of it. And again, this could also be because the other parts had so many different characters and the parts with Loji were just basically two characters and it was easy to follow. How about like the the themes, you know, because like the first book is more or less like a detective novel, right? Like where they're trying to like solve a mystery and the mystery ends up being like some crazy sci-fi thing, right? But this one is more of like talking about society and the society's reaction to to some to a, to the crisis, right? That's coming up, you know, not only like the the general populace, but like also the military reaction too. like we didn't really touch on that that much. But like that's also a huge part of of this part. Is talking about Zhang Beihai and then like you know his interaction with the the newly formed Space Force, which I actually didn't catch that it was called Space Force until this time for some reason. <laughs> like I, yeah, it's it's uh I, I guess weird that his name that, but anyway, the, the the style of the book is much different. Is there any one style that you liked more or less, or? I mean, I don't know if I can chalk it up to to translator. Um, I mean, I don't think it's translate because I don't. As far as like the actual like translation and prose and all that, like it didn't strike me as all that like different, you know, from the first one, or at least, or at least I didn't I didn't feel like a a new translator was coming through doing this. Like it's just more like how Lucian shows to you know write it. But uh, I mean, I think for me, like the difference between you know this and the first book is that there, like I had met, said before about like. The, the wall facers and well the, you know the, the fact that um aliens uh you know can't can't deceive and the humans can and all that and as well as like how humanity is reacting to this and all that like there are like more interesting ideas on the page like imme- you know immediately versus the uh the initial one um so like there are like some sci-fi you know hooks uh to this that are like immediately much more engaging to me on the other hand you know like Again, a lot of character from a character and plot standpoint, like this is just a lot of uh, like I didn't really like like the military stuff and like the military guys. Lot they just kind of like blended together to me, and I really wasn't all that super engaged with them. It, at least in the first one, you had like Wang Yi Wenji and um, and Wang to kind of like at least they're they're not super compelling characters, but at least there's like characters to hook onto here. And it, like here, it's just. Uh, an ensemble cast that sort of blends together and it's really just sort of like the the sort of the ideas that were coming to the forefront. Yeah, I'll say like this first part, like it's more yeah, it's more ensemble than it eventually becomes. And like I think you're supposed to really like hook on to the G and John Behai. I think John Behai right now is more just a person who is kind of exposing like what's happening in the military and kind of describing the describing the different reactions that like that a person with a more military mind would have around this coming challenge right like the, the difference between triumphalism and escape and uh and defeatism um those become yeah just really important concepts going forward and kind of gives you more insight into not only how they're thinking but how the, the world is thinking uh depending on you know if you're in the military or a uh, civilian yeah i'll take your word for it that he like becomes a more important character but yeah so far like the the military guys have just been a you know a vehicle to like communicate this other sort of like duopoly, you know, like ideological duopoly going on of like techno fetish, you know, like the, you know, the technologists versus the uh, human spirit, you know, uh, a faction of the military here. Yeah. There's a lot of people in that, in that world. I think like the, the biggest character moment for John Behai would be, you know, when he kind of called out uh, his, uh, his, his comrade for saying like, actually this guy is a defeatist <laughs> and the guy and the other guy was like, ah, yeah, you're right. And so like, he kind of like went around the, the normal procedures. And I think even later on, like the waste of this is like, Oh you, you actually should probably go through the proper procedures for other people. <laughs> yeah. So any other final thoughts? Uh, hopefully you guys are excited to to read the next parts. Yeah, I'm definitely, yeah, I'm definitely interested again. Like the fact that he's kind of throwing so many, you know, like little, like, 
questions of again these little like uh, faction you know factionalism sets of competing ideologies here is kind of you know uh, it, it is pretty interesting to me. I, I I thought you picked a I thought you picked a good spot for a cliffhanger to end this on. So I I am compelled to read at least to fin- at least to finish this chapter. I hated that like it was hard to say what the final line was. <laughs> I mean, yeah. maybe you guys talk about your experience. Cause like, I oh, wanted no, to say like, fi- Oh, well, that, I mean, yeah, I, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, cause I, I had to say like, and the fourth wall facer is dot, dot, dot. I didn't want to put G in there because like, <laughs> it would have been yeah. a big spoiler to read. Sure. So yeah, I, okay. you guys are reading on eBooks, right? So how did you actually yeah. find the, the spot to end? Did you just like scan that? Like remember that? And when you said, yeah, I mean, yeah. When you said that and I kind of, well, you know that and the percentage of the book I was through at this point. It's like, hmm. yeah, I, I I did a search in the ebook and I just highlighted that line and then I went back and read it and I had forgotten what that line was, but that's, that's how I knew it. <laughs> luckily, luckily for me, I have a terrible memory, so I <laughs> I, I kind of guessed what was going to happen, but it wasn't necessarily. Uh, I wasn't anticipating. I was anticipating, but I didn't know it for a fact. I guess. So anyone looking to disrupt the ebook industry, they should come up with an open standard of the location of a book and have like a, a way to give bookmarks to across different, you know, Kindles or Apple books or however you read books. Cause it's, it's a hassle <laughs> and that we're all like on, you know, I'm, I'm like going back and forth between the, the paper white version and the, the actual, like I have the hard copy too. Um, it's yeah, it's not easy to come up with like good spots to stop. Especially, it's easier when the book has like clear chapters. Like even the three body problem and uh, the long way to smog on a planet had like clear chapters where you can stop. Right, but this is like gigantic parts. And like the you'll notice like in for episode three, it's just part two. Part two is a little bit bigger than the other ones. So hopefully this 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 length of episode is its content is good. I thought. To me, like I thought, this is a good size of content for one episode. So I'm kind of glad we I broke it into the six chunks. Yeah. Yes. And, and plus, num- someone needs to make those bookmarks translatable to Wikipedia articles for people who don't want to read the book but don't want to have the whole thing spoiled for them either. <laughs> who would do that? That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, I was worried about the learning, sort of yeah. character list at the beginning because, well, <laughs> reading this on an ebook, like, you know, I read certain like. Because that makes it difficult to like. Oh man, I gotta like uh, refer back to this this character. And Norton, fortunately, it's not like a huge list of characters, but like you know, certain types of types of like fantasy novels that have you know like a big list. You know, have like a glossary of terms in the back, and you know, a big list of characters in the front, and like a cool map. That I have to just get. I have to get the paper copy because I bounce back and forth between that stuff, and that's annoying to do on a ebook especially well that's the worst part about ebooks is if it does have a cool map then like yeah those cool it's hard those cool those cool maps don't come across yeah i read um, the song of ice and fire on, on the ebook and yeah that was the thing but i remember they also had like a gigantic a, appendium at the end of each book of like all the houses and, <laughs> and people yeah. and stuff so yeah and, and one final thing i'll mention is um you know right now we are in year three of the crisis era uh, era has become super important not in the story wise but like they, they're a really prevalent thing throughout the series like they kind of denote different eras uh, happen at different times so just yeah pay attention to that well thank you very much for listening and please check out our website at rehydrate.space for any release episodes the reading list the pronunciation guide um, and all the other content that we put up there and leave comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on twitter at rehydratepod and if you would like, please leave reviews on any place that has reviews, and we'll, we'll definitely take a look at them. Uh, and please join us next time for episode two, Cosmic Brush, where we'll be covering the end of part one of The Dark Forest by Leo Shishin.